This is the Retirement Detective Podcast, where we dive into cases with Philip Mock, chartered financial analyst and certified financial planner professional, to solve common retirement and financial planning questions. Get insight into how to solve quandaries that appear on the path to and through retirement, ideas on how to approach savings and investing for retirement, and how to plan for retirement in a tax-efficient manner. Now, here's your host and lead retirement detective, Philip Mock. Hi, everyone. It's Philip Mock here with the Retirement Detective Podcast. In today's episode, we're talking about the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, otherwise known as the FDIC. This is the government agency responsible for insuring deposits on banks. So today we'll talk about the history of the FDIC, how the limits came to be and how they operate today. And we'll talk about how the FDIC limits apply to you as a retirement investor. We're going to dive into this case right now. Let's start with the history of the FDIC. The FDIC has been around for a long time, nearly 100 years, and was established in 1933 as a part of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal program on the heels of the Great Depression. Prior to the FDIC's establishment, There really was no sort of federal insurance program to protect depositors when a bank failed. As a result, people lost their life savings when banks failed, and that contributed to the economic turmoils of the time. If you've ever seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life, that movie centers around a run on the bank and what happens when a bank fails and how traumatic it was for that entire town. So the FDIC was created to provide some confidence to the banking system and to try to protect depositors from losing all of their money in the event of a bank failure. The FDIC insures up to a certain limit, just like most insurance products, whether you're buying life insurance or liability insurance, you have some sort of coverage limit or payout limit, and the FDIC is no different. The amounts have moved up a lot over time, The initial amount was $2,500 at its inception in 1933, and then it was doubled a year later to $5,000 in 1934, and then increased to $10,000 in 1950, and so on and so on. In 2008, on the heels of the financial crisis, the insurance limit was temporarily increased to $250,000 per depositor per insured bank. And then later, that increase was made permanent in 2010, with the passage of the Dodd-Frank Act. Much like as it was in its inception, the increase in the deposit limit in 2008 and 2010 was intended to provide greater protection to depositors and to restore confidence in the banking system, just like it was when it was founded in 1933. So let's talk about how the FDIC operates today. So today, the FDIC, you can think of it as a as a insurance company. So let's let's talk about just briefly how insurance companies work. Most people listening to this podcast probably have some sort of insurance. You either have life insurance, you may have a home with a mortgage and therefore you're required to have homeowners insurance, you may rent, you may have renters or tenant insurance. You may have health insurance, you may have disability insurance, you may have 
accidental death and dismemberment insurance. There's, there's all different types, but they all more or less function the same way. They do a bunch of math. They hire actuaries and determine the amount or the probability of a certain peril happening given a pool of risk. And then they turn that analysis into basically an equation for them that makes it profitable. They say, if we charge this much, then we know that for every thousand instances or 10,000 instances or 100,000 instances, we'll actually have this many claims based on their math. And as long as we charge this much in premiums, then we can cover those claims and still keep our operations. So the premium is what they charge. That's, that's their fee, basically, their income. And they take that income, and if you never have a claim, you just pay it, and you never get any benefit from the insurance. But if you do have a claim, you made lots of little payments over time, and you may get a substantial benefit from being the recipient of a claim. As long as the math works where they're charging enough in premiums to cover the cost of their operations and the cost of their payouts, insurance companies can remain profitable and and, in operation for a long time. The FDIC is really no different. So the FDIC operates by collecting insurance premiums from the banks that it insures, and it uses those premiums to pay the costs when a bank fails, it pays back the depositors up to the limits. The FDIC is also responsible for cleaning up failed banks and selling their assets or selling or merging them with other banks. They'll actually come in and usually take over management. Often the management gets fired basically. They'll come in and clean everything up. The FDIC has authorization to actually borrow from the treasury if its insurance fund ends up being depleted, uh, but this hasn't been the case for quite some time. So let's talk about how the premiums work for a minute, because I think that's a less discussed topic. It's just like if you were going to apply for a mortgage or a car loan, most people understand that if you as an individual have a, a great credit score, your lending opportunities are better. You probably have greater diversity in lending terms. You may have greater diversity in lending lengths. And most importantly, the rate, the interest rate that you're charged for being a borrower is typically lower. So from the lender's perspective, they see you as lower risk if you have a great credit score and therefore they're not going to charge you quite as much interest. That same process is applied to banks with the FDIC. At the FDIC issues each bank something called a CAMELS rating, which CAMELS is an acronym, and basically it's an assessment of the safety and soundness of a bank. It's kind of like a scorecard. And so they get the score, and then there is a published assessment schedule from the FDIC that basically says, you have uh, you know, a vertical axis and a horizontal axis, and you, you see where things line up. And it's based on how big the bank is, how new the bank is, and then what the CAMEL score was. So it, intuitively, the more established large banks with great CAMEL scores pay the lowest premiums. Conversely, 
new banks that are maybe new, small, and and in their first uh, audit did not have a good camels rating, don't pay great premium rates. They're, it's more expensive. Particularly complex institutions may have higher premiums too. So when you make a deposit at a bank, that increases their deposit base. And uh, based on post-financial crisis legislation, the deposit base is basically all of their deposits plus their tangible equity. So effectively, um, they are charged the premium based on more or less their entire liability base for the bank. And you look at what is that total amount? Like what is their total deposits plus equity in each quarter? Then they are applied uh, the particular rate that applies to that particular bank. And then that is their insurance premium for that quarter. Each quarter, we look at the base, you look at the this particular rate and you apply it. And that's how much the bank pays in insurance. So when a bank fails, um, the FDIC comes in, they clean up the bank, the, ins- the deposits are insured up to the specific amounts. And that money comes from every bank in the country that's FDIC insured, pooling those premiums together, that is where that payout comes from. And if it's not sufficient, they can actually go to the treasury to get more. As it relates to you, as a retirement investor, the FDIC insures deposits up to 250000 per depositor per insured bank. And depositor is defined uh, uniquely. It's it's based on your your tax ID, and it's also based on the account type. So you have to really be careful that you don't go over this limit. Um, there's nothing illegal about going over the limit. You just have to understand that if that bank failed and your deposits for your category are above the limit, then you may lose out on any amounts you had that were above that limit. And that was a part of the SVB bank failure that was scary was SVB had a particularly large number of deposits that were above the limit and uninsured. In this particular instance, the Federal Reserve decided to come in and say that they're going to make all the depositors whole, not necessarily the investors and the bondholders, but the depositors will be made whole on SVB. But there's really no guarantee that that will be the case every time. And I mean, financially, I don't think it could be the case every time. The key words in the definition are per depositor and per bank. So if you have a million dollars and you want to put it at a bank and it's all going to be in a individual taxable account in your name, then your best bet is to open four accounts at four banks and stay under the FDIC limit. If you put it all in one bank, you would have 250,000 of insurance coverage and your 750,000 that's above that could certainly sit there and collect interest, but you do have the risk that if the bank failed suddenly, that you would lose out on that $750,000 potentially. And bank failures can happen very quickly as we saw with SVB Bank. That entire debacle played out over about a 48 hour period. So it can happen very quickly. 
So the FDIC also provides additional insurance coverage for different types of accounts, like retirement accounts, for instance. If you have taxable accounts, so checking account, savings account, money market account, CD, those are all in the same category, and that limit applies to all of those. So if you have 200000 in a savings account and 200000 in a checking account at the same bank, from the FDIC's perspective, you have $400,000 and you're over the limit. If you have a checking account that's $200,000 and an IRA account at the bank that's $200,000, it's my understanding that those would be considered separate. If you have a joint account with your spouse, you each have $250,000. So that joint account or joint accounts would be subject to a $500,000 limit. And you can open as many bank accounts as you want across as many banks as you want. So if you have millions and millions of dollars that you want to deposit at banks, you can certainly do your best to stay under the FDIC limit. You're just going to have to deal with the administrative burden of opening lots of bank accounts at lots of different institutions. Let's talk about the categories for a minute. So the FDIC recognizes several different categories. There are single accounts. Those are owned by one person and they're insured 250,000 per owner. And all of this I'm getting from the FDIC's website. You can go there, it's www.fdic.gov and they have lots of great tools and you're welcome to go there and use, um, they have calculators, they have a, a bank find tool to determine if your bank has FDIC insurance coverage and to investigate your particular circumstances. But I'm gonna walk through the categories here in summary. So like I said, you've got single accounts owned by one person. Joint accounts owned by two or more persons are in a, diff a different category and it's 250,000 per co-owner. Certain retirement accounts like an IRA are 250,000 per owner. Revocable trust accounts are 250,000 per owner per unique beneficiary as long as the trust meets certain terms and the beneficiaries meet certain terms. Corporations and partnerships have their own category, 250,000 per corporation. Irrevocable trusts have their own limit, 250,000 for non-contingent interests of each unique beneficiary, as long as that unique beneficiary meets certain criteria and the trust meets certain criteria. Government accounts have their own category and employee benefit plans have their own accounts category. Now there are a few things that the FDIC insurance does not cover. It does not cover stock investments, bond investments, mutual funds, insurance policies, municipal bonds. It does not cover safety deposit boxes or their contents. So if you have you know, uh, a bank account and then you also have a safety deposit box at that bank, whatever you have in the safety deposit box is not covered by FDIC insurance. Whatever you have in there, you're just hoping that those walls are really thick and that that metal is really strong and whether it's a robbery or a natural disaster, that whatever you have in there will be safe. Some depositors think they need to apply for or purchase FDIC insurance, but that is not the case. Whenever you deposit money at a bank that's FDIC insured, the insurance is automatically applied. 
you it's just part of their deposit base. So like I mentioned earlier, the bank's premium is based on how large their their deposit base is plus their their equity. Um, and then that rate is applied. And so when you make a deposit, a new deposit and an FDIC insured bank, then your deposit becomes part of that pool and their premiums go up slightly and your account is protected. So as long as it's under the limit, at least. So there's nothing you have to do. You don't have to apply. You don't have to fill out an application, etc. If you're still curious about your particular bank, as I mentioned, there is an FDIC bank find tool, which allows you to research the FDIC insured institutions, their branch locations, uh, the operating status of a bank and the regulator responsible for that particular institution and to determine if it is in fact FDIC insured. Often many banks also put an FDIC insurance sticker uh, you know, on the window or maybe it's in a little placard at the, the teller desks, but um, you can do research and determine if your bank is covered. The FDIC has definitely been a hot topic in the news, and I hope that this podcast episode today was helpful to you in understanding a little bit about how the FDIC was originated, how it came to be, how it operates today, and how the insurance limits can be applied But most importantly, I hope you take away that there's really great resources from the FDIC itself at FDIC.gov, and you can go there and do lots of research. And a quick note, for you credit union account holders, the NCUA more or less functions the same way. And if you go to their website, you can learn about the insurance that is available to your accounts at credit unions. That's all for FDIC insurance coverage talk today, and I look forward to speaking with you next week. Take care. This recording strictly is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. Philip Mock is an owner of 1522 Financial LLC. 1522 Financial LLC is a registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in the state of Oklahoma. Registration of an investment advisor does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of 1522 Financial LLC. 1522 Financial LLC is not affiliated with any guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. 1522 Financial LLC does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. 1522 Financial LLC shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, accounting, or other professional services, and nothing in this podcast should be relied upon as rendering legal, financial, accounting, or other professional services. Philip Mock is not a detective or law enforcement officer. Any reference to cases or case files is purely for entertainment purposes only.